passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. It seems like Hollywood loves sequels and it loves reboots. Honestly, it seems like every movie that comes out today is just a rehashing of the same old movie or Jurassic Park 5 or 6 or 7 or Indiana Jones 5, 6, 7. Both of those are actually going to be happening sometime in the near future. Why is it that it seems like there's such unoriginal thoughts in Hollywood and every single thing is just deja vu of what we've seen before? I think in part it's because filmmakers hate taking risks. If they find a cash cow, they're going to milk it until long after it is dead. Hollywood loves sequels. It loves reboots. And in a way, this morning's text is a sequel. It's a bit of deja vu, if you will. But that doesn't come from a lack of creativity from the author of Genesis. The sequel, the deja vu that we see this morning is instead caused by the continual temptation that faces God's chosen people. What is that temptation? It is the temptation to trust God in the midst of hard times or to turn our backs on him. This morning we are looking at the life of Jacob and Esau uh, and really Isaac uh, for the second week. We have been working our way through the book of Genesis and last week we, we kind of opened the chapter to a, a new part of that book looking at Esau and his children. And this morning we're going to be looking at something that's going to be really familiar for us if you were with us for Genesis chapter 12 or Genesis chapter 20. And the reason is because Isaac seems to follow in the footsteps of his father. Isaac seems to fall prey to the exact same sins and temptation that his father once fell to. You see, just like Abraham, when Isaac was faced with adversity, he has to answer the question, am I going to trust God or am I going to trust myself? Honestly, that's a question that each and every one of us has to ask as well. When we are faced with adversity, are we going to trust God? Or are we going to trust ourselves? You see, like Abraham and like Isaac, many of us may be tempted to trust in our own intellect in the middle of hard times in order to get out of these binds that we find ourselves in. For some of us, we may find ourselves tempted to succumb to the pressure and just go with the flow. Others still may turn to our savings or to non-Christians for advice who may look like they have it all put together. Who will we trust, God or ourselves? That is a question that really boils down to another question, and that is the question of God's presence. In other words, what do we believe about God's presence? Do we really believe that God is with us, that God is present with us in every moment, in the good times and in the bad? Perhaps even more important than that, if God is with us, does that actually make a difference? Does the fact that God walks with us actually make a difference, actually change our lives to live in a certain way? 
And that's what the story of Isaac here in Genesis chapter 26 is all about. If you were to boil this passage down to one simple truth, I think it would be this. The people of God should live aware of the presence of God. The people of God should live aware of the presence of God in their own lives. We shouldn't live in such a way that this is just head knowledge. Or this is just a simple piece of Bible trivia. We should live in such a way that the knowledge of God's presence changes us in at least two ways. First, it should prevent us from participating in some things. Not to say that God is big brother in the sky, but the reality of God's presence means that we should abstain from certain activities in our lives. God's presence should cause us and prevent us from doing certain things. But even more than that, God's presence assures us in the moments when life gets hectic. It assures us that God is with us and it motivates us to live with confidence that God is not only with us, but that God cares for us as well. As we open to Genesis chapter 26, we see in the life of Isaac both perfect examples of how not to live like this and both how to live with this mindset. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along starting in verse 1 of chapter 26. Now there was famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt to dwell in the land, uh, but dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. As we open this text, we find ourselves with a familiar crisis, a famine in the land of Canaan. And this really echoes the experience that Abraham had in Genesis chapter 12 and in Genesis chapter 20. The text itself admits that famines were relatively common in the land of Canaan, recognizing and and declaring that this is not the same famine that Abraham suffered from hundreds, a hundred years earlier than this. A famine is no laughing matter wherever it is found, but especially in the agricultural society of Canaan in that day. The people of Canaan relied heavily on rainfall because of the limited rivers of that land. And this caused a crisis. See, this was a crisis caused by a drought. And this wasn't just any kind of drought. Think of the drought that has struck California over the past few years for a similar experience. And remember, their primary industry in Canaan in this time was agriculture. And I just want to give you a little bit of an agricultural secret that many of you may not recognize or know. You need water to grow crops. It's it's just a part of, of things. You need water to raise livestock. And if you don't have water then you don't have food in this time period. And for semi-nomadic Isaac and his family, and for others, if you didn't have food where you were, you would simply uproot yourself and move to where you could find food. 
And so that's what Isaac does. That's what untold others do. Verse 1 begins with Isaac on a journey to Egypt, just exactly like his father did a hundred years earlier. But he momentarily stops in Gerar. And it's here when he is in Gerar that God intervenes, that God reveals himself to Isaac and tells him not to travel to Egypt just like his father once did. This is a moment of extreme importance to Isaac because it is the first time that he has had God explicitly speak to him. There was another time where he heard God speak to his father, and we'll get into that in a moment. But this is the first time that God has spoken to Isaac, asking Isaac to be obedient to him. This is the exact same charge that God gave to Abraham a hundred years earlier. He is asking much of Isaac here. He is asking Isaac to forego the logical option, to uproot his family and, and go the safe way to Egypt in order to survive. And in other words, he's, he's asking Isaac to trust God and not to trust himself. Trust me and not yourself. Has God ever asked you that question? Has God ever asked you to trust him and not to trust yourself? Have you ever been challenged by that still, small voice in your head to leave the details up to God? Have you ever been challenged when reading God's word to let go of your attempts to control the situation and instead leave the outcome to God? I would venture a guess that many of us, if not most of us, can relate to God's calling for Isaac here. To trust God and not himself. But you see, God doesn't just ask Isaac to trust. He also gives Isaac confidence. He also gives Isaac the means to trust in him. He declares that his presence is with Isaac. He says, trust me and I will be with you. I will walk with you. It may be difficult, but you will not regret it. You see, it is a significant moment here. And it is a significant fact that the same thing comes from Jesus in his last words in the book of Matthew, right before his ascension. He says the exact same thing. One pastor tells the story, it's a comical story, of a recent Chinese convert named Lo. And Lo was beginning to read the Bible. And he began reading the Bible, but all he had was the King James Version. And so it was a little bit uh, of a of a time-consuming process. And he got to the very end of Matthew chapter 28, and he came across these words from the KJV. It says this, And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. And lo, even though he understood the difference between English and Chinese, was remarkably encouraged by hearing those words, And lo, I am with you always. God says the exact same thing to each and every one of us. I am with you always. What a source of joy. What a source of encouragement. Friends, we should be encouraged by God's presence with us. The fact that God is with us means that we do not have to fear, no matter what comes our way. It doesn't matter if it is unemployment, 
It doesn't matter if it is strife with a coworker or a boss. It doesn't matter if it's some sort of sickness that keeps working its way back into your life or countless other things. If God is with you, then you have no need to fear. That is what God is telling Isaac right here. God is with him. That God is walking with him. That God is giving him confidence that he will provide for Isaac and for his needs. Friends, God looks over us for good. And he will not abandon us in our times of need. And that's what God promises Isaac here. As Isaac is faced with this difficult decision to trust God or to trust himself, God promises Isaac his presence. But in case that's not enough, God goes a step further. He doesn't just promise Isaac that he will be with him. He gives him the same promise that he gave to his father, Abraham, time and time again. Take a a look again at verses 3 through 5 here. It says this. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Keep that in your mind. And now notice this other passage where God promises Abraham these exact same things. So the exact same thing that Isaac has just been promised has also been promised to his father, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 22. It says this, and he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. See the remarkable thing about God's promise here to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26 isn't just that he is reiterating the promise that he had once given to his father Abraham. He's referring back to the only other time in Scripture that we know of that Isaac has heard God's voice. In Genesis chapter 22, words that had been etched into his brain for eternity because it was right after God had provided a burnt offering and spared his own life. What God is doing here is not just reminding Isaac of the promise. He is also reminding Isaac of the way that he stepped in and saved him. He is reminding Isaac of the way that he provided a substitute in order to spare his life. That God did indeed provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Friends, we've said this countless times on our way through the book of Genesis, but I think it bears repeating this morning as well. God points his people, he points us to the past to give us confidence of his presence here in the present. God tells us to look toward the past. Look at the ways that God has been at work in our lives. Look at the ways that God has been at work in scripture to be assured, to be confident that he is at work in our lives today as well. That's exactly what he does here with Isaac, 
reminds Isaac that he has provided for him in the past, that he has come through for Isaac in his most desperate hour of need. And he surely will do so today. And it seems like God's plan to stiffen the backbone of Isaac works. At least it works temporarily. Take a look at verses 6 through 11. So Isaac settled in Gerar. And when the men of the place came asking him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had heard, or when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, She is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife and would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall be put to death. Now it's easy to skip over this first sentence. It's easy to skip over the first sentence and just look at all the things that Isaac did wrong. And indeed, we're going to look at the ways that Isaac has done things that are wrong. But first, God says, stay, and Isaac stays. This is a moment of radical obedience in Isaac's life. It is a radical trust here in Isaac's life in God. He makes a conscious decision not to go to Egypt, not to trust in himself, not to trust in the wisdom of this world, and instead to stay in Gerar, to trust God in the midst of famine and in the midst of uncertainty. It is a moment of great rejoicing as we read about the life of Isaac, but of course that obedience doesn't last long as we just saw. He moves to Gerar and it seems like the moment he is unpacking his moving van, the neighbors come over with a plate of cookies welcoming him and his wife or maybe his, his sister to the area and they ask about them. And Isaac panics when he is greeted and maybe he remembers what his dad once did. Maybe because they're in Gerar and his dad once spent some time in Gerar and, and said, son, don't do what I did. This is the first thing that comes to his mind. But whatever the case, he follows in his father's footsteps. And he pretends that Sarah is, excuse me, that Rebecca is his sister. He perpetuates the exact same lie that his father did decades earlier. I have a question for you. What is it that causes this sudden change of obedience to disobedience. What is it that causes Isaac to suddenly just change from being radically obedient to astoundingly disobedient in this moment? I think it's really pretty simple. The potential for danger seemed greater to him than the presence of God. Isaac thought that the presence of potential danger was more real than the presence of God with him in this moment. And to be honest, his fears weren't unfounded. It wasn't all that uncommon for what he thought might happen to happen, for a man to be killed for his wife. See, it's not that he doesn't believe God. He certainly does believe God is with him. 
It's not that he's even forgotten the promise that God has said, I will be with you. The reality is, in the crucible of the moment, in the heat of the moment, he defaults to trusting himself rather than to trusting God. He defaults to trusting himself instead of trusting God. And we look at him and we say, how foolish. But before we cast the first stone, look in the mirror. How often do we also default in the moment to trusting ourselves rather than trusting in God? How often do we lash out in anger in the heat of the moment? How often do we decide to trust in our own wisdom rather than in the wisdom of this book when we are faced with a trial? Sure, we may never try to pass off our spouse as a sibling to protect ourselves, but the real truth of this passage is that in a way, each of us is Isaac. Each of us is faced with the exact same temptation in the moment to trust ourselves rather than to trust God. Now, as we would expect, Isaac is eventually found out by Abimelech. Just a side note, Abimelech here is not the same. Abimelech is in Genesis 20. Abimelech is just a a word that means my father is king. It's likely that it was a title just like Pharaoh or, or just like Caesar is a title, or it could have been the same way as, as a, a lineage like King George III. Whatever the case, it isn't the same one. And what we see here is that Isaac is doing the exact same thing as his father. And Abimelech finds out. He sees that Isaac is doing things that he shouldn't do with his sister, and he rightly concludes that these are just a husband and a wife, and he's angered by this deception. He's rightly, it's right to be angered here at this moment. He calls Isaac to the carpet. And the language that he uses here, just language that, that reveals a past. It reveals that, that something has happened in the past. Where this, is, this has happened to Abimelech's family before. That someone has pretended to be a, a sister rather than a spouse. And it's brought judgment upon each and every one of them. And it just so happens to be that it is Isaac's father, Abraham, that informs this previous transgression. You see, God is gracious. He uses this pagan man who seems to be more moral right now than Isaac is, to give Isaac the safety that he is unwilling to trust God for. As we look at Isaac's deception, I think it teaches us a lot about sin. It teaches us a reality about sin. Sin is selfishness. Sin is selfishness. Think about it. Isaac chooses, instead of fearing God, to fear the people of Gerar. And that fear of others leads him to make decisions only thinking about himself. He puts his wife at risk, and he even puts the people of Gerar at risk from divine retribution, just like in Genesis chapter 20, because he's only thinking about himself. In your own life, when you're not fearing God, then you're fearing man. And when we fear others we will inevitably act out of selfishness. An example. Let's say that you have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. And instead of sharing the gospel, you shirk that opportunity because of a fear of rejection. 
a fear of not being able to put the words together in the right way. That is the epitome of selfishness. It is saying that you are valuing the way that you feel. You are valuing your own pride more than the need of someone else to hear the gospel. That may sound harsh, and indeed it is, but it is no less true. The first time I heard that, it was like a dagger of conviction going deep into my soul. The fear of others is selfishness. Sin is selfishness. And when we fear others, and when we sin, we are following in the footsteps of Isaac, our spiritual ancestor. Sin is selfishness. But thank God the story doesn't end there. The story continues by looking at Isaac's repentance, even though it isn't explicit, picked up in verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so they called the name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called the name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. You see, for some reason, Abimelech allows Isaac to remain in Gerar. It could be that he's just being gracious right now in the midst of this famine. But whatever the case, Isaac decides to put down some roots. Even though he's a foreigner, he decides that he's going to diversify, not just in raising livestock, but also to start farming. Now, a hundredfold yield is not unheard of at this time in a great year. But to have a hundredfold year... A hundredfold yield in the midst of a drought would have been impossible. There is no explanation here but God at work in Isaac's life. There is no other explanation except the fact that God is with Isaac during this season. You see, it seems like overnight Isaac shoots up the ranks of the social ladder here in Gerar. One moment he's an outsider just moving to the city thinking that his neighbor is going to kill him for his wife. And the next moment he is the most successful man in the city. In this city, struck by famine, it's not at all unreasonable to think that the multitudes of Gerar would actually come to Isaac to buy grain from him. It's not unreasonable to think that many of them would actually come to work for Isaac. As a way to earn a livelihood. In a short amount of time, Isaac becomes the most powerful man in Gerar and the sole chance of survival for the people of Gerar. And the text is clear all of this prosperity comes solely from the hand of God. But with this increase 
came the test of prosperity, much like Abraham faced just a century earlier. Now, I want to just take a moment and notice the parallels here between Abraham and Isaac and the first real stories that we have of their lives. First, Abraham is called to radical obedience and he responds in radical trust. Isaac is called to radical obedience and he first responds in radical trust. Next, we see that Abraham, he shortly turns his back on God during a famine. Instead of trusting God, he trusts himself. Isaac, he shortly turns his back on God, trusting in himself rather than God during a famine. And finally, we see that Abraham, in response to his shortcoming and sin, repents and is blessed with a great deal of prosperity. Isaac, he repents and is blessed with a great deal of, resp- uh, of prosperity. He is following in his father's footsteps for better and for worse. And as his wealth grows, he becomes a target of vandalism. The Philistines don't like that he is so much wealthier than they are, that he is so much more powerful than they are, and so they attempt to cut his source of, well, uh, of wealth off at the source by stopping up all of his wells. But this vandalism doesn't work because God is with Isaac. He continues to find more water, and so Isaac is forced to leave. Isaac does so willingly, but even cut off from his wells, even cut off from his farm, God continues to bless him. He continues to find water, and not just water, he continues to find fresh springs of water. And the people of Gerar, they claim that they are their own. It's interesting that Isaac chooses not to fight over these wells. These wells that he clearly found, he chooses not to fight over them. He simply moves on. Why is that? Why is it that that Isaac allows himself to be taken advantage of here? It's not because he's a pushover. Instead, I think it's because Isaac has learned to trust in God. Isaac has learned to trust in God during hard times. When he is being persecuted, he trusts in God. Even if that means that God allows this to happen to him. You see, he learned the hard way that God is with him. And he learned the hard way that strife doesn't pay And he knew that God would provide for him. See, Isaac knew that it was more important to live peaceably with the people of Gerar than it would have been to be proven right. To fight for these wells would have been a temporary victory, yes, but it would have made his presence among the Philistines even more uncertain, even more uneasy for him. And so he seeks to honor God. And God indeed honors Isaac and his desire to honor God by giving him more water. And it's important for us to look at this and recognize this, that if we honor God with our lives, he will indeed honor us. If we honor God with our lives, he will indeed bless us. And sometimes that might be with material prosperity, but more often than that, it's something else. You see, the prosperity that Isaac was given here actually led to more and more hardship, more and more strife than anything else. It's not until the next passage that we see what this true blessing is, picking up in verse 23, and it says this, From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father, fear not. 
for I am with you. And I will bless you and multiply you and your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. What is the greatest blessing that God gives to Isaac? It is his presence. What is the greatest blessing that God gives to us? It is his presence. You see, after some time of sojourning to escape this famine, the famine does indeed subside, and so Isaac is able to return to his home. We see in in chapter 24 that Isaac lived near Beersheba. And just imagine the joy that he's experiencing as he begins to go home. Imagine the joy for Rebekah. Imagine the joy for his two young sons as they go home to Beersheba here. And when Isaac arrives at Beersheba, he gets this vision of God, and God tells him three things. First, he tells him to fear not. Isaac is told with growing hostility towards him that he is not to fear, that God is with him, that God is watching over him, and that God will take care of him. And friends, if you are prone to fear, if you're prone to fear tomorrow, if you're prone to fear others, if you're even prone to fear for your own life, if you are faced with some sort of sickness or uncertainty, God's words here are for you too. Fear not. God will take care of you. God will watch over you. That's the first thing that Isaac is told. The second thing is this, I am with you. Isaac is reminded again of God's presence with him. He has no need to fear because God is with him. And the same is true for you. If you are a Christian, God's presence is with you. His Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You have no need to fear because God is with you. And the third thing that he tells Isaac, he assures him of, is that he keeps his promises God keeps his promises. Isaac is told that the promises of land and the promises of offspring will indeed come true. Why is that? Because God is a good God. Because God is with him. Because God will not leave him. And you can be assured that God will keep his promises to you as well. That God will keep his promises to you as well for good. That God will not leave you. That God will not forsake you because he left his son. He forsook his son on the cross for you. And we can rest in the promises of God. And notice how Isaac responds here. Isaac responds to this threefold declaration with worship. And I think that's just such an appropriate way for us to respond to this truth. That we are to not fear because God is with us. That God keeps his promises with us. That we should respond to the presence of God with worship. In the exact same way that Isaac does. And so this passage concludes sometime later with a meeting of, of Abimelech and Isaac. Pick up in verse 26 as we close here. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his advisor, and Philcol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and you have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly now that the Lord has been with you. So he said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done nothing to you, but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. 
So we made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him that the well that they had dug, that the well that they had dug, and said to him, "We have found water," and he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. We don't know how much time passes, but at some point Abimelech comes to Isaac at Beersheba. And when he comes to him, he makes this declaration that's extremely startling. He says, we now know that the Lord is with you. They look at the the life of Isaac and they say, we can clearly see that God is the one who is at work in your life. Everything that you have done has pointed us to that conclusion. Everything that has been given to you points us to that conclusion. But here's the startling thing, and it's probably something we skip over a lot of times. I think that this truth is evident in the beginning. Let me explain that. I think that this truth is evident even in Isaac's sin here in Gerar. You see, the people of Gerar were watching when Isaac sinned. They were watching when he was caught in his transgression by Abimelech. The people of Gerar were watching when Isaac responded with repentance. They were watching and they saw that the life of Isaac after his repentance was a life that continued in repentance. A life of fruit. Isaac's public sin was indeed humiliating. And it required public repentance. And that's exactly what he did The sin was painful. It's not fun to have an entire city look at your failures and shortcomings, the ways you've tarnished the the name of Jesus. But at the same time, your weakness and your brokenness can be a testament to grace. It can be a testament to others to remind non-Christians that you don't think that you are better than them, but instead that you are saved solely by the grace of God. There's a book called Blue Like Jazz. It's it's by an author named Donald Miller, and he shares a a time in his own life when this worked itself out. He went to a very secular university, and he was one of just a a handful of Christians. And they sought out to find a way to break through the stereotype of Christians as nothing but hypocritical and judgmental. And there was this large gathering on campus, and so what they decided to do was to have a confession booth. And everyone thought at first that this was something that was, you know, just buying into the stereotype that here were the Christians and they were allowing the sinners to come to them and to repent. But when someone would walk into this confession booth, they weren't greeted with a demand that they repent. Instead, Donald Miller and his friends began to ask for, repent, uh, ask for forgiveness for the ways that the church had failed them. They asked for forgiveness for the ways that they had failed them, for the ways that the church had hurt them. It was a time to highlight God's grace. It was a time to highlight God's forgiveness, his mercy and his compassion, not their strength. I think just like Isaac, each and every one of us has the chance, the opportunity and the calling to represent God with our lives. And we can do that in our brokenness as well. We can do that in our brokenness just like Isaac did. Just like when Isaac repented. Unlike Isaac, we are not going to receive material prosperity as a sign of God's blessing for us. But just like Isaac, we are receiving God's promise of his presence as his blessing for us. 
And so we can testify to Jesus in our lives through our fruit, through our actions, through the ways that we act in the middle of the crucible of life. The world is watching. And the world is especially watching when you go through hard times. One pastor, he shares a story of a godly couple who are going through the tragedy of watching their infant son faced with illness and eventually with death. And as a nursing staff and the physicians watched this long process, this couple experienced, they saw this couple trust in God. They saw this couple show their dependence upon him, even in their deepest and darkest pain, and they were astounded. In fact, they approached this pastor and said, we can't believe how much they trust in God during this hard time. They saw the fruit of God in their lives. Even in the midst of the horror of watching their son die. Now praise God that we, most of us, will not be faced with the exact same crucible, but each and every one of us is faced with trials. And how we act in those trials will not go unnoticed. What is it that people see when you are faced with hard times? What is it that people will see when they put you under the microscope? When they put your family under the microscope? Will they see that you are trusting in God or that you are trusting in yourself? Friends, as we started this morning, the key to all of this The key to living confidently, the key to living like this is to be aware of God's presence in your life. The people of God should live aware of the presence of God in their lives. And so ask yourself, does the presence of God change the way you live? Does the presence of God change the way you live? Ask yourself another question. As you find yourself in the middle of, of trials, are you trusting in God or are you trusting in yourself? Are you resting in God or are you running from God? And finally ask, can others see the fruit of God in your life? Can others see the fruit of God's presence in your life, in your brokenness, and your repentance? Is His presence evidence even when life seems impossible. The calling of this passage is to live our lives in the shadow of God's presence, to live in such a way that we can be confident that others see God's presence in our lives. And we do so only by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your presence. We are grateful for the love that you show us, the ways that you watch over us, the ways that you care for us, that you walk with us in good times and in bad times. God, help us to live in such a way that we trust you no matter what, that we honor you in every season, and that as the world is watching, that we will not be put to shame, and that you will be honored in the ways that we live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.